Why don't we uh, begin with a word of prayer here? Heavenly Father, we look to you tonight. We again acknowledge that your word is um, the sword of the Spirit, and you have the ability to give us understanding and wisdom. Lord, I thank you again that you had a heart to show us what is to come, that we don't have to be unaware, that we could really have a sense of what's coming in the future. And we recognize that you are sovereign, you're God over all of history. And we're grateful, Lord, that in the end you win. And so do we because of our association with you. We ask you to help us tonight to grab a hold of what we'll be talking about. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I hope in uh, preparation <clears throat> that you read the sections we'll be on. Tonight we're gonna be doing Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, and if you're just catching it for the first time tonight, then you're behind, one, two, and three. Uh, and next week will be four and five. I wanted to mention two additional things. One is that in two weeks, we're gonna have the night of worship, and so that's the break in, kind of in the middle of this. So it's next week we'll be here, but in two weeks, we're gonna have uh, the night of worship here instead of the Revelation study, and then it'll continue the week after that. And then finally, I wanted to mention that some have asked about uh, th that they didn't make it in the morning, but they're coming in the evening for opportunities to give if, um, if they would like. And so as you're leaving, there'll be some tables out there. We're not asking you to do that, but for those who have wondered whether or not there's an opportunity, we're gonna make it available as you're leaving. Uh, before we begin, uh, the new material, I think it's important every week to give you a brief summary of where we are in this and understand exactly in terms of the timeline where we are. Sorry, no, you're fine. I did notice, by the way, that Jesus did not come back last week. <clears throat> but if you'll turn with me, if you've got the Revelation study, we're going to print some more of these. We, we printed some more this week, and I think they're already gone again. <laughs> Uh, so we need to print quite a few of them. But if you turn to uh, page three here, I wanna just give a, a quick summary of some of uh, the things we've already discussed. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on it, but uh, the book is called, of course, Revelation. Uh, it doesn't have an S on the end of it, so a lot of people call it uh, the book of Revelations. It's actually the book of Revelation uh, is the way that you usually say it. It comes from a Latin word. It means to disclose or unveil, and it's the same word from which uh, we get the English word apocalypse in the Greek language. Author's John, the date was uh, 95 AD, so he was uh, older, or he'd known Jesus already for 30 years, or Jesus had already died, rose, and went up to heaven thir uh, 60, I'm sorry, 60 years earlier. It was a long time, and now he's writing this book. Uh, the location is the island of Patmos, which is off of modern-day Turkey, Key verses 119, that summarizes the entire book. Therefore, write what you have seen, that's the vision that God is revealing to him. What is, which is the condition of the churches we'll be talking about tonight, and then what's gonna take place after this, which is the future, as we go through this. Three major approaches to the book, historical. Some think that all of this began with Christ, but it really was mostly fulfilled in the past, although there's remnants of it today, but it's more, it's history. Others view it as a spiritual book. It's not a real history. It's all symbolic. And then there are others that say it's prophetic, and I'm convinced it's prophetic. There's obviously a lot of symbolism in the book, but it is meant to be a prophecy. And then to understand Daniel, or Revelation, uh, you really have to interpret it through the lens of Daniel and Matthew and First and Second Thessalonians. So when you put Revelation, the book of Revelation, with these other three main areas, Daniel 2 and 7, Matthew 24 and 25, and then the books of First and Second Thessalonians, it puts everything together. <clears throat> now, look with me at a second page, page 13, which um, I didn't tell you that there'd be a slide for that, so... Uh, but on page 13, for those of you that have the book, I wanted again to summarize what's on this page because this is an important part of understanding. It's the alignment of key events in the book of Revelation. We are, I'm convinced, currently in what's called the church age. And really, Revelation 1 through 5 is kind of the church age. Uh, then, the next big thing that's gonna happen will either be this event called the rapture, where we're caught up to be with Jesus, or else, 
It'll be the signing of a seven-year agreement. Now, you'll hear this a lot about the seven years of tribulation. Daniel talked about this. He referred to the fact that there's gonna be a period of time toward the end of time where a group of nations are gonna come together under a charismatic leader who will be called the Antichrist and there'll be seven years of tribulation. The first half is called just regular tribulation. The second half is called the great tribulation. And so you see that on there and then, at the end of that seven year period is going to be the return and the reign of Christ. And I believe it's for a literal thousand years. He's gonna actually reign on this earth. And then when that's done, we get to eternity where people will find their eternal destiny. Now the thing that opened up the book of Revelation for me years ago, was when I noticed the alignment between some of the chapters of Revelation. Uh, I noticed that Revelation 1 through 11, and you can kind of see it on this diagram, that top line that goes all the way across, that is Revelation 1 through 11. But when you get to chapter 12, it begins to go more in depth about things he's already talked about. And so they have to line up. And so if you're on this chart, you realize that Revelation 6 corresponds with Revelation 12 and 13. And Revelation 7 corresponds with Revelation 14. And the wrath or judgment of Christ when he comes back, what's called the day of the Lord, it's found in 8 through 10, but it's also found in 15 through 18. And then when you get to the end of the book, you get the reign of Christ in eternity or the last three chapters. And so you realize you've got to line those up and that's what to me gives understanding. It's almost like uh, he wants to summarize it all and then the story picks up in chapter 12 in the middle of the tribulation and it keeps going forward again but now we get all kinds of new details to help us understand it. And so this part, this nine week uh, time is gonna be about the first 11 chapters. Uh, the plan is in the spring to do nine more weeks where we get into the rest of it and then go into some of the uh, really interesting details of the book of Revelation. So uh, let me uh, look at one last chapter here, or uh, page here, page nine, again, that summarizes. And this one you will have a slide for. Um, <clears throat> so this is just what I, I just explained how chapters one through 11 talk about the church age, a seven-year tribulation period, the rapture, which it just means to be caught up is what the rapture means. Jesus has come to earth to reign and then eternity. And then I broke it down. One to three is the church age. Four and five, Lord willing, we'll do next week. It's a pause in heaven. Uh, a lot of things, uh, Revelation, you'll notice that there are several pauses that take place. It's like we get a glimpse of what's happening in heaven right before things are fleshed out on the earth. And very key things happen during those pauses. Four and five is a pause, although I, I would link it with the church age. Uh, six begins these uh, events that are called seals. It's like the unsealing of a, of a uh, scroll. Uh, in biblical times, they used to seal scrolls. They put a seal on there. And, and in this case, it's like a scroll that has many seals. You unwrap the first seal. It, it unwraps to a certain point, but then you come to a second seal. And as you unwrap these, those first seals have to do with the first part of the tribulation period, and that's what Jesus talked about. He said there'll be wars and rumors of wars, there'll be pestilence, you know, and these types of things in Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> then chapter seven, uh, a sealing takes place of 144,000 witnesses who are Jewish. We know the tribes that they're actually from, and I believe that the rapture of the church actually takes place there although it could happen at the beginning of all this as well. Seal seven is chapter eight, where it begins to introduce the idea of God's judgment or Jesus' judgment when he comes back the day of the Lord. Nine are the trumpets, five and six, which are judgments on people. 10, Jesus is coming to the earth at the end of the great tribulation. And then 11, um, Jesus actually comes to reign. It's just alluded to in chapter 11. And then again, 12 through 22 begins to summarize it again. Now, if you were here last week, we began, we looked at chapter one and we began to look at um, John's vision. So John was on the island of Patmos. He had been exiled there. And all of a sudden he saw a vision of a man Someone called a son of man and, and he was very distinctive in his appearance. 
Uh, he was dressed like a high priest, only he had a sash, which was appropriate for a judge. And so whoever this is, had a, you know, is coming as both a priest and also as a judge. And it talks about his face being bright like the sun. And we learn very early on that this person that's standing before him is Jesus himself. And Jesus is holding some things in his hand. And he's also surrounded by some lampstands. And the lampstands, there are seven of them, and they represent seven churches, which is what we want to look at here today. Uh, you, we recognize, of course, the fact that as a church, our job is to be a, a lampstand for Christ. You know, we're, we're putting Christ up here and proclaiming him for the world to see. And so the, Jesus is, is illustrated as standing there. You've got these candle stands there, and each one represents a church that is representing the light uh, to the world. But these churches, most of them have some issues with them. Uh, the other thing that's kind of interesting is that Jesus has in his hands some stars, and those represent, it says, the angels of the churches. And there's a lot of discussion about what that is, but the more I've looked into it, the more I'm finding some alignment. Most scholars seem to think that those actually represent the, the ministers in those churches. The, the, the word angel there just means messengers or sent ones, and so really what's happening is Jesus is confronting the person or persons responsible for what's going wrong with that church, which is a scary thought for me. So if any of you would like my job, um, I think it's true. Of course, we, we um, are held accountable, as pastors are, and so those, those uh, angels are called angels, but it's likely that those are probably pastors. Now. With that introduction in mind, let's go to page 21 and we're gonna jump into Revelation 2 and 3. I almost would wanna open it up and say any questions about that before we move on because it's kind of a, a lot to summarize, but at least you get a sense, a basic timeline. You know, Christ is coming back. We're in the church age. Christ is coming back. A seven-year period of tribulation. Jesus then literally comes back to reign on the earth for a thousand years and then eternity. That's the general timeline. The question is, where are we in all this? This book, though, was actually written to seven real churches. And if you look at the bottom of page 21, and I'm getting a pointer here, but you'll notice at the bottom there, it says churches in Revelation, what are they? <clears throat> and I think that they may represent all three of these things. First of all, we know that they were actual churches in Turkey. They're, they're real churches to whom he's going to be sending this letter. Second, uh, they're viewed as seven types of churches. And so as you look at the issues that each church faces, it's a cause for us to say, is this something that's true of us? And, and representative of churches of all ages, although some feel that those seven churches are not just representative of seven types of churches, but that they will become more and more relevant when we get to the end. In other words, just before Christ comes back, these messages are gonna be more meaningful. And the third thing that they might represent is periods of church history. Now, when I was at Bible college, <clears throat> I took a church history course, and we looked at the different periods of church history, you know, AD 30 to AD 100, you know, and then 101 to whatever. And we looked at these periods of church history. And before we began every new period of church history, our professor had us read from Revelation. And we'd read the section that was describing the period we were gonna be looking at, and it was remarkable how the alignment was. It really seems like this might have been a divine way to realize that the entire book of Revelation is prophetic, not just after chapter three that those churches maybe do represent timelines. And if that's the case, then we're in the church of Laodicea, which is the seventh one. And that is the one, if I were to pick just one, that's the one that the church of today is like the most. So it should sober us just a little bit. Now, if you wanna look into more of that in terms of some dates about this, a site I would send you to is called biblestudytools.com and they have a basic timeline, and so I've put it up here. This is not in your notes. I think in a future edition, I'll throw in this chart. But <clears throat> the first church 
that is written to is the church of Ephesus, and that represents the apostolic church, AD 30 to 100. The second church that John addresses is the church of Smyrna, and that's the church of the Roman persecution, and intense persecution took place. And when we get to Smyrna, you're gonna see they were, they were persecuted greatly, AD 100 to AD 313. Of course, what happened around AD 313? Well, the church of Pergamum is the church of the age of Constantine. Remember, he made the Christianity the religion of the empire, and it changed the dynamic of the church. And so that's 313 to 600 AD. The church of Thyatira was the next one. It corresponds with the church of the Dark Ages, AD 600 to 1517. Sardis is the church of the Reformation, AD 1517 to 1648. Philadelphia was the church of the Great Missionary Movement, 1648 to 1900. And then Laodicea is the church of the apostasy. AD 1900 to the present. Again, when you compare these with periods of church history, it is remarkable how they line up. Now, a lot of people do not believe that that's the case, that, that, that's, that they're periods of church history. And part of the reason that they don't believe that is because they, they recognize that the church is very complex. You know, if you were gonna talk about, for example, the church of today, would it be the Church of America? Would it be the Church of England? Where would, I mean, where would it be, you know? And so you realize that sometimes just broad strokes about the way a church would be or a period of time maybe don't capture all of Christianity, although they're pretty close. Again, I think it's remarkable, the lineup. Now, let's look at the rest of 21. I wanna cover this page. In these letters, um, they're are some characteristics that's true of all the letters, and it's important for us to understand that. Uh, first of all, Jesus is described in every one of these letters in a particular way. Now, earlier in Revelation chapter one, we have this description of Jesus, and he looks a certain way, and he's holding the stars, and he's standing among the, the lamps, and, and all these descriptions. Well, as he begins to address each church, he uses a part of that description from chapter one to represent that church, which is really quite remarkable because the part about Jesus that's mentioned applies to whatever their situation is, which I think only God could do that. He could line up this thing in such a way that even the picture in chapter one fleshes out to the seven churches in a very specific way. All these letters have, first, Jesus describes himself in a way that's relevant to the church he's addressing. Second, he commends and encourages them if there's a reason to commend them. Third, he rebukes them by pointing out their sin, if there's a reason to rebuke them. Fourth, he gives correction and counsel. Fifth, he gives a promise to the people who are overcomers. And sixth, he encourages us to listen to what the Spirit is saying to all the churches. And so this is the pattern for all of them. It's a very similar pattern. And then underneath that, you see the different churches and a one-word description of them, Revelation, or I mean just a short phrase describing them. Uh, the church of Ephesus was considered to be the loveless church. You know, John or Jesus says about that church, you've lost your first love. The church of Smyrna, Smyrna is the persecuted church. Again, you could see how that would line up with that historical timeline, the persecution that took place before Constantine. The Church of Pergamum, it was the compromising church, which is exactly what happened when Christianity became the, the, the church of the land. It, it allowed freedom, but it created a lot of other issues. The Church of Thyatira was the tolerant church. They put up with things they should not have, false teachers and, and moral things that they should not have. Sardis was the dead church. Philadelphia was called the obedient church. And Laodicea was the worldly church, which I think is the church of today. Now, go to the next page, page, page 23, and it summarizes them again. And I think if you just looked at this one chart, you'd get a sense of how to understand all of these churches. And I wanna go uh, from the top and work our way down, at, uh, and in a little bit here, I wanna actually do the verses. We'll talk about the verses. 
Uh, so you have the church of Ephesus is the first one in chapter two, one through seven. The description of Jesus is that he holds seven stars and walks among the lampstands. It is a reminder of the fact that Jesus is walking among the churches. And they needed to realize that because they were conducting business as if Jesus weren't around. I think when it says they lost their first love, I think it was Jesus. Commendation and encouragement, your deeds, hard work, perseverance, and sound doctrine were true of this church. This was, this was the kind of church you'd say, this was the church getting it done, you know? They were working hard, they were dealing with certain things, they were rooting out bad doctrine. I mean, they were really staying pretty, pretty true there. But what's the rebuke? You've forsaken your first love. Now, what Jesus says about these churches, at least the ones that need fixing, he says, if you don't fix this, I'm gonna remove your lampstand. And you realize the implications of that, and I have to think about that even in terms of my own, my own life. If, if we do not address certain things in our church, Jesus may remove our ability to be a lampstand anymore. The church won't continue, which is, I think, his way of purifying his church. Correction and counsel, he said, remember and repent and do the things you did at first. Remember your love for Christ and your love for other people, those things. And then the promised overcomers, the right to eat from the tree of life. Now this tree of life is first talked about, of course, in Genesis. And I mentioned the first week of this that there are a lot of correlations between Genesis and Revelation. Things get fixed in Revelation. This tree of life is a picture of the eternal life that they will experience through Christ. Okay, you get to the second one, Smyrna. It's the persecuted church. Jesus is described as the first and the last who died and came to life again. That description is perfect for this church because they're being persecuted. And it's really tough. And then Jesus reminds them through this description, I've been there. I died and I rose again in glory. Uh, the commendation, you're spiritually rich and are suffering for Christ. The rebuke, there's no rebuke for this one. That's how I wish it would be for our church. I don't have anything against you. Of course, persecution does that, by the way. It purifies the church. Uh, correction and counsel, be faithful and do not be afraid. Um, and we'll talk about that phrase here in a minute, do not be afraid. And then the promise is you'll receive the crown of life and will not be hurt by the second death. Second death is hell. That's what that is. And so it's a promise that, that they will have eternal life. Pergamum, he has a sharp double-edged sword as a tongue in, in this picture of Jesus. Well, we know that in the book of Hebrews that the word of God is likened to a sword. And this is the problem that this church had. Now their commendation was you remain faithful and true to my name. The rebuke was you've tolerated false teachers in immorality. You're allowing this false teaching to go on. Realize I'm the one with the sword, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's, a, again, I think a reminder, stay true to the word of God. The counsel, repent and remove the false teachers. The promise, you will receive hidden manna and a white stone. Now we'll talk about that in a little bit. Next church, Thyatira. This was the tolerant church. Jesus is described as having eyes that are like blazing fire and feet burnished like burnished bronze. Bronze in the Bible is almost always the color of judgment. And so he's coming, he's portraying himself as someone who's gonna come and judge that church. Now I'm, I'm pointing this out to realize that every part of these, the letter, every part of the description is intentional on, on Christ's part to help them understand and see what they need to do. A commendation, your deeds, your faith and love, your service and perseverance. They had a lot going for them, but you've tolerated false teachers in immorality again. We'll talk about those in a second. What's the correction? Hold on to what you have until I come. And then overcomers, you will have the authority over the nations and will receive the morning star. We'll get to that in a minute. Sardis, the description is he holds the seven spirits and the seven Stars. This is regarded as a church that was dead. And, um, and again, it's a picture of Jesus. I think the seven spirits is the sevenfold spirit of the Holy Spirit. I think it's a picture of the Holy Spirit. Seven stars, I think, are the, the pastors. But again, it's a reminder, Jesus is walking among you. I know what I'm talking about, you know. He's saying that, not me. 
Rebuke. Uh, you're a dead church full of hypocrisy. Correction, strengthen what remains. Remember what you have heard, obey it and repent. And then promised overcomers, you'll be dressed in white and have your name written in the book of life. Church of Philadelphia, the description of Christ, he is holy and true and holds the key of David. Now this is gonna be, I think, a picture related to the temple in which we will dwell one day or be one day in the new um, millennial kingdom. Commendation, you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Rebuke none. There's nothing wrong with this one. Counsel, hold on to what you have. The protection, you will have a pillar in the temple of God and you'll have my name written on you. And so and it's like almost a, a permanent presence in the presence of Christ. And then finally, the, La the church of Laodicea. He is uh, regarded as the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. It's a reminder that he created everything. And I think also a, an implication is he can destroy it as well. There's nothing that he commends about it, which is a little scary if that happens to be the church of today, the church of Laodicea. I mean, characteristic. It doesn't mean every church, of course, of that, of that age is that way. You know, understand that there are pockets here and there, but if you think about it, if this were the church of Laodicea today, you think of all the churches out there and you, you consider the question, are, are, are they teaching the word of God, most of them? Are they faithful to the mission to lead people to faith in Christ, things like that? The rebuke was you are worldly and spiritually wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Problem is they didn't notice. Correction and counsel, buy spiritual gold and white clothes and salve, repent or salve. Um, hear my voice and open the door. Again, we'll talk in more detail. And then the promise to the overcomers, you're gonna sit with me on the throne. Now let's move uh, to the map that's found on the next page there, page 25. And this gives you a sense of where these churches were. You notice Patmos is the bottom left there. Uh, and then these churches are addressed in the order in which you would travel these churches. Ephesus, then Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. By the way, if this is indeed a historical description. It's remarkable that these churches are just happened to be the right ones at the right time. I mean, again, it would be something that only God could do, that he would line this thing up somehow and flesh out in, in history. Um, Dr. Walvert explains about these churches, the order of scriptural presentation was geographic. A messenger would naturally travel the route from the seaport in Ephesus, 35 miles north, to another seaport, Smyrna, proceed still farther north and to the east of Pergamos, and then would swing further to the east and south to visit the other four cities. Now, someone asked last week why um, these churches, because there were a lot of churches around in Bible times. Dr. Wolver explains it this way. He says, obviously, these churches were specifically selected and providentially arranged to provide characteristic situ situations which the church has faced throughout history. I think there's another explanation though. I think John worked with some of these churches. We know, for example, he lived in Ephesus. These were churches with which I think he was familiar, ones that I think he was working with, and so it would be appropriate that he would send the letters to these particular churches. Now, with that introduction in mind, we're gonna jump into the Bible part of this. And I, I mentioned to you, I think both of the last two weeks, that I think it's a good idea sometimes to put some notes in our Bibles as we're reading along. Uh, you won't be able to get everything here, but I wanna now look uh, at a little greater detail to chapters two and chapter three. Um, beginning in chapter two and verse one, and I'm gonna just throw in um, comments along the way, different things related to those churches to just give us a better handle of what they were like. It's, under, it's important to understand, by the way, as we read this, that we should be looking at ourselves and we should be asking what's, what is true and we should be mindful that Christ is walking among us and, and we wanna apply these things to our lives. If there are things that God addressed, I mean, I'd be curious, I'm not gonna ask you to do this, but I would be curious if I asked you, what do you think 
Jesus would say about this church, what would you say? If he said, well, this, you got going for you this thing over here, but if he went and said, but I have this against you, what would the things be that he would see that maybe we're not addressing and that we need to or else we'll lose our lampstand? I don't know. I have some theories on that. But let's begin reading this. So, again, it's letters to the seven churches. In verse one, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This church was regarded as a gateway to Asia Minor there. And again, uh, angel could be a pastor and not the angel. And here's, by the way, why that's the case. Uh, why would you write a letter to an angel over a church? You know, why, why would the letter be written to an angel? It, it doesn't hardly make sense. But if that person is the messenger is regarded as the pastor of that church, then it suddenly makes sense. An angel is used in the Bible in more ways than just when we think of an angel. The one who holds, continuing, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you've found them to be liars. False teachers are found in the first four churches that we're gonna be looking at here. There were people in the church that were spreading things that were not true. The church of Ephesus was doing something about it. Uh, some have actually named who these apostles were, although the book of Revelation doesn't. But included in this are names, some of the names, you know, you had the 12 apostles, or really, well, it was the 12th, after Judas was replaced, you had the 12 apostles. There were other people that began to call themselves apostles. People like James the Just, a guy named Silas, a guy named Andronicus, and Junia, some of these, Junia, some of these are actually found in other places in the Bible. In their teaching, was probably not much different than the Nicolaitans, which we're gonna talk about in a minute. Uh, they were teaching basically that um, you can do whatever you want, that God doesn't care in terms of morality, in terms of some of these other things. Verse three, you also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. In the original Greek language in which this is written, um, the wording of the sentence is your first love you have left. It puts the emphasis on the fact first love you've left. Uh, some of you may or may not know this, but in the Greek language, if you wanted to emphasize something, um, you'd, you'd put that at the beginning, regardless of the fact that it wasn't maybe the subject or the verb, whatever it was. If, it, if, it, if you wanted to emphasize quickly, that'd be the first word. If you want to emphasize the verb, that'd be the first word. But here, the, the first idea is first love. First love, which is what Josh was talking about this morning. It could be love for Jesus, it could be love for others, and some have suggested that it actually is a love that's reflected through evangelism because the, the story of this church, part of their problem was that they had lost some of their, I think, evangelistic fervor. And they're supposed to be a lampstand and maybe they'd forgotten that. Verse five, remember then how far you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first, otherwise I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do of this, you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So I thought they were the next uh, church, which I think they are. Um, so let me talk about this it's, for uh, just a second, this church. This church was doing so much right. They were so zealous. They, they, were, they were going against false teachers. They were, I mean, they seemed like there's just a church that was just really doing well. And then Jesus says, you've forgotten your first love. And then the phrase here, he says, remember how far you've fallen. And I realize, wow, that's kind of a big deal. I mean, we'd look at it and say, well, they got most of it right. They're a pretty decent church. You know, they're standing up for the truth. They're doing a lot of the right things and it's like a pure church and everything else. And then you better remember how far you've fallen because if you don't get that part right, the church can't endure if we're not connected to Christ. Now, who were the Nicolaitans? Well, they were a heretical sect 
According to one of the early church bishops, Arrhenius, uh, they were followers of a guy named Nicholas. And um, they think that this Nicholas was one of the seven deacons in Acts 6. Remember how Stephen was one of the deacons that was selected? They think maybe he was one of them. And they had what's called a form of antinomianism, which means that the laws in the Bible, God's commands don't apply anymore. We're, it's, it's really was an overemphasis on the fact we're forgiven, we have grace, we can do whatever we want. And it was teaching people to be immoral and, and really uh, live in a lifestyle of freedom that crossed the line into sin. That's what was happening with this group. Um, verse seven, anyone who has an ear should hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor, the word there by the way is Nike, like the shoe, I will give the victor, the overcomer, the right to eat from the tree of life which is in God's paradise. And this again will appear later on in the book of Revelation, this tree of life and the fact it's a very unique tree and I think we're recapturing what happens in Genesis and he's just reminding them, you stay the course here because this is your, your destiny. Let's move to the next church, the letter to Smyrna, write to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Smyrna was a large, wealthy city about 35 miles away from Ephesus. It was also seaport. It was supposed to be the most beautiful city compared with all these other ones, and its name means myrrh. Let's see the description of Jesus, the first and the last, which is a reference to the fact he's eternal, the one who was dead and came to life he was crucified and raised from the dead, and therefore he says, I know your affliction and poverty. And the word for poverty here is extreme poverty, so there was something about this church that they were really suffering. It wasn't just they didn't have enough. They were suffering extreme poverty. They were being persecuted. It was, it was just very, very hard for them, and what they needed was encouragement to persevere. Verse 17, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, Satan is mentioned in four of these, these churches, and in this case, it appears that the local Jewish population were the chief persecutors of these believers in this city. And so they're called the synagogue of Satan. Now, that might seem a little bit dramatic, but remember, Jesus said things like that, too. He looked right at the Pharisees, and, and he said, you're just like your father, the devil. And that's exactly what I think is happening here. Verse 10, don't be afraid. A better translation there, stop being afraid. And so this was a church that was characterized by, by fear. Stop being afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will have affliction for 10 days. Sounds like a pretty specific amount of time, but 10 was the number of completion. And, and, and so I think it's a reference to the fact that you're going to go through a testing, but it's then going to end. Goes on to say, be faithful unto death, which uh, some of you have heard maybe the name Polycarp. He was, was a bishop of the church here. He was martyred there. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The victor will never be harmed by the second death. Again, the second death is hell. Third church, verse 12. Write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Now, this one was about 20 miles from Smyrna. It was a wealthy city, and it was an incredibly wicked city. A lot of pagan cults were in this particular city. Um, they were known for a university that had a library that was almost like the Library of Alexandria. It had 200,000 volumes, scrolls, in their library. And so this was a very educated city. And you can begin to see how this might apply to different churches as you begin to think about their situation here. Uh, this particular town, Pergamum, was the first place that erected a temple to an emperor. First one to worship the emperor. Now, what's interesting to me about that is that this is gonna happen again or something like it because we know that the Antichrist, when he comes, is gonna declare himself to be God and he's gonna demand worship. And so there's gonna be, this idea is gonna come back again. Caesar worship. 
goes on to say, the one who has the sharp double-edged sword says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. There was an ancient pagan temple there that was huge. And you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. We don't know who this Antipas was, by the way. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block in front of the Israelites to eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now the reference you wanna put on this one is Numbers 22 through 25. It tells the story of this Balaam guy. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar with the story, though, the people of Israel had come out of Egypt. They were making their way to the promised land and a king in the region where they were hired this guy named Balaam, who was a prophet, to prophesy against Israel. And so he called for Balaam and he said, I want you to, I want you to curse the nation of Israel so that we can defeat him in battle because he was petrified. And Balaam said, I can't curse these people. He, went, he actually went to God about it. There's a big question about Balaam in terms of even how is it possible because he was, he was really a godless guy, but somehow God prophesied through him. And so God told him, you can't prophesy against Israel. And this went back and forth several times. The king kept coming back to him. Why don't you curse this part of them? Well, just curse this section over here. Each time Balaam said, there's nothing I can do for you. I'm a prophet, I can, only, I can only say what God tells me to say. Well, Balaam came up with an idea. He said, what if, what if we send all of our beautiful women over, over there and get the, the people to commit immorality? And then God will judge them, and that's exactly what happened. He taught the people to give themselves to immorality. And so this becomes a description then when it says you have some in this church that are giving to this particular teaching of Balaam, it's people that say it's okay. You know, it's okay to be sexually involved with this person when it's not okay. And then they encourage other, people's to, other people to do it as well. Verse 15, in the same way you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly or soon or suddenly when you're not expecting it and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some hidden manna, which might be a reference to Jesus within them, experiencing Christ in a deeper way. I will also give him a white stone and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now there are a couple pictures here that are kind of noteworthy. First of all, there's kind of a, uh, an allusion to the uh, Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament because you remember the Ark of Covenant had a few things in it. Uh, it had in there the rod of Aaron, but it also had in there what the stone tablets were in there. And also they put uh, some manna in a jar in there as well. And this was a symbol of God's presence among them, the manna and the stone and then Aaron's rod. And in time, something happened to the rod. We don't know, but later on in the Old Testament, the rod disappeared, but the only things that were left were actually the two things that are mentioned here, representing God's presence right in their midst. But the stone itself might have other significance. Uh, my friend uh, Steve Huda notes, a white stone was often given to an athlete who won in the game and was the winner's pass to, to the celebration that followed. You, you won, you get this stone, this allows you to enter into the celebration, and I think that's more likely what's happening here uh, the, with those who overcome. Uh, the letter to Thyatira, verse 18. Sorry, this thing is turning on me. Okay, write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. It was about 40 miles away from Pergamum. It was a lot, a lot smaller city. It was known for uh, its crops and purple dye. The Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze, says, let me stop for a moment, but a little change, a subtle change took place in that description of Jesus because up to this point, he was regarded as a son of man. Now he's called the Son of God. And the description that's used is a picture of God and judgment. And so you realize kind of what's gonna to happen to this church. 
Verse 19, I know your works, your love, faithfulness, service, and endurance. Your last works are greater than the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my slaves to commit sexual immorality and eat meat sacrifice to idols. Uh, this woman, her name probably wasn't Jezebel. It's, a, it's actually a reference to an Old Testament story. It was the wife of one of the most wicked kings of Israel, Ahab. And she was the one, she was, a, she was wicked to the core. And apparently within this church, there was a woman who called herself a prophetess. And she was leading many, many people astray and again into immorality, very similar to the Nicolaitans in terms of license to do whatever you wanted to do with your body. And she's the one that's being condemned here. What's interesting to me is verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Jesus was gracious to her. I give her some time. Look, I will throw her into a sick bed, uh, contrasting that, by the way, with the bed of immorality that just was mentioned. <laughs> throw her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her practices. I will kill her children with the plague. Then all the churches will know I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Verse 24, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the deep things of Satan, as they say, I do not put any other burden on you, but hold on to what you have. Verse 26, the one who is victorious and keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations and he will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery, just as I have received from my father. Some of you may recognize that this, this Quote here, he will shepherd them with an iron scepter, he will shatter them like pottery, is from Psalm 2. It refers to the fact that Jesus is gonna reign in a millennial kingdom. And so the promise that's being made to this group that remains faithful is that you're gonna rule with Christ in the millennial kingdom. That's what that's about. And that we're gonna have the authority that Christ had. A very similar authority, we will be delegated authority from Christ. Verse 28, I will also give him the morning star. Morning star is, uh, appears right before dawn. I don't think it's an actual star. Someone can correct me about that, but it's, it's like the brightness before the sun actually comes up, and it's a picture of what's about to come. And many feel like in this context, what's being described is that this particular church is gonna be spared the great tribulation, is what the promise is. Because just at the end of the night, or when the night was, well, it's, it's called the morning star, but um, before the night, hit, this church is gonna be removed and spared the judgment to come. Because it's, uh, this is supposed to take place in the dark hours that precede the dawn of the millennial kingdom. I guess that's how to put it. <laughs> Explain it a little bit better. That there's gonna be these dark hours before the millennial kingdom. The morning star is this promise of the day to come. The millennial kingdom that's gonna come. Verse 29, anyone who hasn't here should hear to what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, I don't think, our, our time is kind of up here. We got a couple more churches. <laughs> Let me try. I'll go kind of quickly here. So the church, right to the angel, the church of Sardis. Um, the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I've not found your works complete before my God. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard. Keep it and repent. But if you are not alert, I will come like a thief. Now, this is interesting to me because it's, it's probably a reference to the Thessalonians passage where Jesus is gonna come like a thief in the night and people aren't gonna be ready. And so this could very well be the church that it's saying here, listen, if you're not alert here, you're gonna be caught off guard when Jesus comes back. I think that's the spirit of what's happening. Verse 38, and you have no idea at what hour I will come against you, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they're worthy. In the same way, the victor will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name in the book of life. Now, there are a lot of places in the Bible where you read about the book of life. It could be a book just of those who have lived or 
uh, in some cases, it have clearly has the idea of eternal life. Now, this talks about your name will not be erased from the book of life. Some people have heartburn over that because it looks like you could lose your salvation. Like, you better do this or I'm gonna erase your name. Uh, but that's not what the verse says. This is intended to be a promise. In other words, it, it, the promise here is you will have the confidence to know that your name is in the book of life, in eternal life. Church of uh, Philadelphia, seven, right to the church in Philadelphia. It was about 28 miles further away. And it says here, um, I know your works, in verse eight, because you have limited strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Look, I've placed before you an open door that no one is able to close. I think it's a missionary open door opportunity. Take note, I will make those, which by the way, do you remember I said about the 1800s, that was the missionary thrust. And here's this church, an open door. I'm giving you an open door. That's what was true in the 1800s to the early 1900s. Take note, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying. Note this, I'll make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing. So you're not gonna have to go through the tribulation if this is indeed a timeline that's going to come over the whole world to test those who live on the earth. It just seems to me he's describing the, the tribulation. He says, listen, if you're faithful, I'm gonna keep you from that. Verse 11, I'm coming quickly. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The victor, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God. Again, a permanent thing, it seems like, named in a temple, kind of like a plaque. You go to the hospital, whatever, you see the people whose names are there. That's kind of the idea, forever it seems. And he will never go out again. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, and my new name. Anyone, and we'll talk about that when we get to that in Revelation. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And then, now we arrive at uh, the last one. Right to the angel of the church of Laodicea. Now, there are a few things about this one. They were known for a few different things. They were known for banks, they were known for wool, and they were known for medicine. Banks, wool, and medicine, all three of these things factor into what he says to the church of Laodicea. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation says, in other words, the one who made all of it, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm gonna vomit you out of my mouth. Now let me stop for a moment and I think people have, uh, really ruined this interpretation here. Because he says, I wish you, you're not, you're not hot and you're not cold. I wish you were one or the other, but because you're lukewarm, I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth. And so I've heard people say, it's better to be cold than lukewarm, spiritually. Like, I wish you were hot or cold, which is really whatever, but not lukewarm. This lukewarm business I can't stand. Well, that's not the interpretation, or the correct interpretation of this. By the way, the water was piped in. It was cold when it, or warm when it started from hot springs. By the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. So again, this is playing into the, the nature of this particular city. Here's what it is talking about. Hot water is good for cooking and sanitation and things like that. Cold water is good for drinking. But lukewarm water is worthless. It's, it's a reference to its usefulness. You're a church that's useless. I can't use you for hot, being hot, for cooking. I can't use you for drinking. You're worthless. You're, you're not accomplishing anything. You think you've got something going, but you don't. You're really accomplishing nothing for the kingdom of God. I think that's the spirit of what's happening here. 17, because you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't know that you're wretched, pitiful, Poor, blind, and naked, I advise you to buy gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes that you may be dressed, which is a symbol of righteousness. This town, by the way, was known for its black clothing. I encourage you to get white clothes. And your shameful nakedness not exposed. And ointment, there's the medical side of it, ointment to spread on your eyes so that you might see. In other words, go... Get spiritual, come alive. 
Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. And the word there is like with child discipline. So be committed and repent. Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and have dinner with him and he with me. A lot of people use this verse as a gospel verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Any of you ever heard that before? It's not a gospel verse. This is a picture of the fact that they were having their love feasts as a church, but Jesus was on the outside. He wasn't, he wasn't inside. It was a church that they did all the stuff and they thought they were doing great, but Jesus was outside knocking, hey, would you like to invite me in? Because if you do, you'll have fellowship with me and I with you. It's an invitation to reconnect with Christ. That's what it's really talking about here. Then 19, as many as I love, I'm sorry, verse 21, the victor, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne just as I also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne. So we'll rule with Christ Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I knew this was gonna be a challenge to get through these two chapters, but I think if we're gonna keep up, the next two will be much simpler or not nearly as much um, information. So, are our heads buzzing? <laughs> uh, I wanna open up for a few questions, maybe not as many as last week, just given the time. So I got a couple people here with Mics, if you have questions, um, I'll, I will attempt to answer them. Some of these, I, uh, I may need more history than I have if it's about some of the specific cities. Yeah, any questions? No questions, really? I have no. a question. Uh, have okay. You, have you been to these ancient cities and what's left of them? Uh, I have not been there, but some of the ruins of some of these are there. Uh, like Sardis, there's a temple in Sardis that's still there that, um, that they would have known about in his day. So the, the ruins of some of these are there, yes. Uh, I haven't been there yet. That'd be a nice thing. I'd love to do one of those tours. I think it'd be fascinating. It's Turkey, though. They don't like us. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Um, so you just, you just went over what it would be historically and what it is ge you know, geographically, do you hold to one or the other or both? I think it's all three. Uh, I cannot get past how the, the, the descriptions of the churches and what Jesus says about the churches and what's gonna happen if they are faithful. When I line that up with the timeline of Christ coming back and everything, I think they're, I think they're historical periods of time. And I think we'll, we'll be amazed. And again, I do think we're the church of Laodicea. I think Laodicea, we have a reputation that we're alive. A lot of churches have a reputation that they're alive, but they don't know God, you know, so, okay. I don't have a question, but I was to Ephesus. Oh, okay. It's amazing. I mean, you talk about the ruins. Yeah. Um, you, you know, like you can see the bases of a lot of the buildings that yeah. were there at the time, and what would I call it? Like, um, kind of like this, I can't think of the word I want, but where, I guess it would be maybe where somebody would preach and you know, all the people were oh, sitting yeah, yeah. there listening. Yeah. Yeah, those are fascinating things. And again, a lot of the ruins are there, so the proof is, is still there, so, okay. Okay, so if you're talking about a timeline and you're talking about history and you're talking about the Church of Philadelphia not having to go through the tribulation, well, wouldn't all these people already be deceased? Yeah, they, they would. Um, I think that at that point, if we, if we assume that their timelines, of course, all of them are gone, you know, now, uh, the original ones, but if we're talking about timelines, just timelines and use it as a metaphor for this end times thing, then it, I think it would be saying that this is the, the, the time before the end is gonna be this time that you're gonna be protected because you're gonna be about Christ's work. It's just describing what that period of time would be like uh, before the last one, that's all. And, and maybe it's the hope of the, the fact that if, you, if we would have stayed faithful to that, it would have delayed even that return. I don't know. I don't know if we could say that, but I, I think it's not, it's, not um, it's, it's more the symbolic 
idea of it than the literal churches because they all did come and they all did go and all their lamps have been removed. But in terms of a timeline, if you're following it, the group before the last one is gonna be spared all that stuff. And then it would be suggested that we're gonna have to go through some of that, so, okay. Okay, maybe one, just one more. Oh, back there, okay, yeah. Uh, the Bible talks about um, like the fake Jews. Uh, yeah. Can you uh, expound on that? Okay, yeah, they would be ones who would claim that they're Jews based on their physical uh, birth uh, being related to Abraham. And so they'd say, Abraham wasn't my father. I, I'm a Jewish by blood. And they would call themselves Jews, but they don't know God. Uh, this group doesn't know God. And so they're ones, uh, you know, Paul clarified that the true Jews are those who come to God on the basis of faith. That that's what a, a true Jew is, really, is somebody that comes to God the way Abraham did. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And, and so it's the, the faith is the thing that makes the difference whether someone's a true Jew or not, but these ones were claiming, well, I'm Jewish, I'm, I'm covered, and Abraham was my father. And, um, and they didn't know God. So they became enemies, and of course, Jesus was nailed to a cross under those circumstances, and, and most of the apostles died martyrs' deaths at the hands mostly of, of Jewish people of the synagogue of Satan, so instruments of Satan, so. All right, let's uh, close in prayer. Uh, this one is the most laborious of all of them, I believe. Once we get into six and seven, things get really interesting. <laughs> um, so let's go ahead and pray, though. Father, uh, just thanks again for your word and help us to just get greater and greater understanding of these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.